Yeah, you can punch me on camera. I don't care. <laughs> or on mic. On mic. So you'll hear the punch. <laughs> right. So. So this is what I was trying to do when I first started the podcast is I wanted to like interview just cool people that I knew, mm-hmm. but like creative people that I knew and just balance out the silliness with like actual like just the reason why I wanted to start a show of some kind was just to sort of highlight the kind of conversations I have and like seek out with people mm-hmm. so like kind of like way back in high school like when I used to read all the Beat Generation books and it's like I missed like that idea of like going out and just like randomly talking to people but I can't really do that now especially with <laughs> corona shit but I mean it's not safe dude <laughs> but just conversations with friends like this stuff I've been we've been doing for years I just wanted to document it mm-hmm. like time capsule style that's cool so that's really what the whole outlier gentleman interview thing is supposed to be is like <laughs> going out and just like documenting cool shit time capsule shit with my weird friends <laughs> endearingly weird friends weird <laughs> yeah yeah I'll take it <laughs> So introduce yourself to oh, the... How do I introduce myself? What do I say about myself? You, well, you can say anything you feel comfortable <laughs> with. Honestly. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I just, I hate talking about myself. <laughs> well, I mean, you could just start with your name. <laughs> All right. I guess that's an easy ask. Um, obviously, duh. <laughs> so my name is Liliana Macias. I, you want to know where I live? I live in the city of Chicago. I've been here since like... I was six years old when my family migrated from Mexico to mm. here. So I was actually born in Mexico. Where? Jalisco, the state of Jalisco, known for mariachis and tequila. <laughs> I love both of those things. I know! It's the best! <laughs> what the fuck else could possibly come out of a place better than music? And it's perfect. It's like tequila makes you drink and remember sad shit. And then mariachi songs are all about how you're sad. And so you pair them together and you got the perfect trifecta of like super emotional booze and music. It is truly magical. (laughs) It also says a lot about me as a person. (laughs) Drinking and sadness. Yeah. And singing. That's that's me too. And it's another form. Over the years, I've liked, I've learned to love very different music, but I always go back to rancheras. <laughs> always. Um, so how long have you been a teacher? An educator. An educator. An informal educator. <laughs> I mean, a teacher too. <coughs> so I started as an informal educator when I was in my last last year of grad school. I went to UIC. I was doing my master's in Latinos and Latin American Studies with an emphasis on gender and sexuality, um, which actually I'm about to publish my research, which I'm really excited. It comes out in December. <laughs> um, and so the last year that I was in grad school, I, um, I saw a part-time position for uh, like a gallery engagement associate for the Chicago History Museum and so I don't I don't really care for museums and I'll explain in a bit why (laughs) um but also like as a graduate student they don't really pay you shit (laughs) and so I'm like I need fucking money and so I was like I'm gonna try this it's a part-time job only three days uh, a week it paid pretty decent and so I started and it was for an exhibition on uh race or the history of race uh the fiction of race I guess we could call it um and so I ran workshops with like little kids like elementary school level kids middle uh, middle school and then high school but then we also did like professional development workshops with like professionals across the city so like people who worked for the city or um you know private institutions who wanted to I don't know immerse their staff in diversity equity and inclusion training and so this was like a supplemental kind of like thing 
and I started like that and I worked there and I was like museums are horrible (laughs) Um, but I really really clicked with my boss at the museum and she was the director of education and so she had this new initiative that she wanted to um, start and it was the Chicago Learning Collaborative which was completely redoing the way in which the museum partnered with um, its audiences across the city particularly its school audiences because before it was like we'll build the programs and then you come to us um but obviously that meant that a lot of actually the lower south side and west side of the city of chicago did not engage with the museum because as you know the city is super segregated and so the museum is on the north side and so it mostly just catered to north siders which as you and i both know means predominantly white folks um and so my boss wanted to do something different and to make sure that we were reaching all parts of Chicago. And so um, she thought I was the person to do it. And I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I took a job as a coordinator running um, one of the first programs, which was Chicago Literacies, which works with English learning students. It's the first time a program like this has existed in the museum. Yeah, it's sad, right? <laughs> it's 2020, and the, this is what this museum's on. This is what I mean about why I hate museums. <laughs> and so I started running the program, and I felt some pretty good collaboration across the city and different neighborhoods and um, gotten some pretty cool connections with like educators across the south side and lower west side. And uh, my program was so successful that uh, <laughs> they were like, we need to expand and so now I'm a manager and I run a division called the Chicago Learning Collaborative and I have two coordinators and now we're in um, elementary school, middle school, high school and I'm currently working on a connection with community colleges. And then while I'm doing all of this, I also lecture at Northeastern uh, for three departments, the Women and Gender Studies Department, the Sociology Department, and the Spanish Department. (laughs) So I stay busy. (laughs) And that is how I started my journey into informal education. (laughs) That was like a Venn diagram of your whole career, like your whole resume. Yeah, dude. And that's not even all of it. There's still some like... uh, like freelance contracted uh, curation of like exhibits, which actually I have a piece in my office I'll show you in a bit. Okay. Um, on queer, mapping queer Chicago, which is what my research is about, Latinx queer cultural productions. Okay. Trying to, <laughs> I was trying to listen to all that and like, okay, I'm going to ask about that. And then wait, I need to ask about that too. <laughs> Sorry, Shit. I went super fast. That's okay. You should have stopped me. <laughs> no, okay. My memory is doing pretty good. But um, so when you say like mapping do you do you do that like historically or do you just kind of watch or is there like a paper trail for like how the communities sort of blossom out and like move from spot to spot throughout the years yeah 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 actually it's a, it goes as historically but it's also geographical okay um the piece that i have in my office it's a, it's an actual physical map of chicago and it spans a pretty long time um it particularly documents uh queer chicago but with an emphasis on where queer culture started so like a lot of people think it's in boys town which is in the north side affluent but actually no one of the first queer enclaves to exist in the city of chicago was in bronzeville mm. um which makes sense because it was near the jazz that were known as the black and tan uh, clubs in bronzeville yeah i think I don't know, would you say that Boys Town basically just kind of gets that, that title just because of... Oh, hell yeah, because of its political connections. Okay. I fucking hate Boys Town. <laughs> <laughs> My research that I published talks mad shit about the horrible things that they have been doing. No, they are evil, all right? And I say, I'm queer, obviously, you know, I've over my life I've dated well, anybody on the spectrum really man, woman, cis, queer, heteroflexible whatever, I don't really mind, right? And so I identify as queer um, but yeah, they have some really disgusting um, policies, like for example they have a program where they pay residents of Lakeview to install cameras that are police cameras actually, and lights and uh, the purpose of that is to encourage them to provide information to the police about people misbehaving because of the bars right but we look when we look at the data of people who are harassed by police in that neighborhood it's always people black and brown folks coming from the south side and lower west side of the city of chicago i think that's one thing too it's like why i wanted to talk with you 
and it's kind of weird like when I thought about the people that I've wanted to talk to and interview on my show it, it's been like women of color but that wasn't by design it's right. just kind of like I want to talk with them because mm-hmm. I know that they are passionate about XYZ mm-hmm. go from there so like that's kind of and also I think that like, this brings a little bit more you know shades to the show and just stuff that interests me and stuff that I want to talk about because where I live now it's really tough to engage and a lot of people don't really like to see like the nuances and things and like Mm -hmm. in their minds if you present that information to one of those people that I'm talking about they might be like well they're just trying to look after the city and it's like well that's what you know that's the blanket statement but there's (laughs) shit underneath yeah like I mean I would say since maybe the Patriot Act, you know, our our personal data is like kind of like a currency. Like it's sort of traded. We're, we're commerce. Every time you go on Facebook, it's commerce. Oh, yeah. Whatever I'm clicking on, whatever I'm just saying in the little Google microphones recording me. Those fuckers. <laughs> everything is just sort of transformed into like this little, I'm like a walking billboard for whatever products that I might buy. Right. And all that shit that, that I think the cameras, everything like that is just a part of that to sort of like taking a people and not just like dividing them but like monetizing people and that includes like shit that they're dealing with like their own, even their own struggles like that shit can get manipulated and turned into something profitable easy yeah that's the entirety of the nonprofit industrial complex is this i work for a fucking nonprofit. i'm gonna pay shit to do this well meanwhile people who develop the fucking bots to listen to me get double the pay for what i make and i'm like why what the fuck is your contribution i'm over here like working with our youth and shit and breaking down chicago's very fucking like defined neighborhood borders and you're sitting fucking making little tiny robots to listen to me talk about how well the reason (laughs) i mean i think the reason why is that you know when you when you're willing to become part of like that machine you know You'll get compensated, but it might not be enough to just retire off of. But, yeah. you know, the machine needs those parts and it's going to... It's capitalism. It's going to keep rolling you rolling you into it, like steamrolling you into it. Yeah. It's like if it's for profit, people, you will find money. But if it's not for, pro- it's not for profit, people have no fucking interest. Even though there's a direct correlation. Yeah. You need physical bodies to make profit. Like capitalism can't exist without the exploitation of someone. And so... <laughs> even, even podcasting, it's like somebody did a study and it was just sort of passed around like telephone game. But like from like the general gist of it was like maybe 1% of podcasters actually make money. Yeah. So you have. Did you look at the racial makeup of that one percent? <laughs> it's like Joe Rogan and then like two other oh, dudes. Oh, I hate Joe Rogan so much. <laughs> Joe Rogan can suck my non-existent dick. I Fan- guess he can suck on my ovaries. Phantom, phantom dick. <laughs> my phantom dick. Um, actually, dicks are just clitorises. So. <laughs> just like that came out of the body instead of staying inside. <laughs> you're getting science facts too, people. I don't know if those are real science facts. That's just me. <laughs> That's just me and my randomness. <laughs> Do not quote me. <laughs> Go to your doctor and ask them questions. I'm not a scientist. Doctor, do I have a? Do I just have a really big clitoris? Is this why you called me in the room? <laughs> That's, that would be quite a conversation to have with your doctor. Holy to shit. be honest. <laughs> So when you, when you said that the museums, the the museum that you're working for now or working with now, mm-hmm. um, didn't have that program up until now in 2020, like I mean, a part of me is not surprised because I feel like college it's meant for colleges like they just they put it in the college, mm-hmm. you still got to pay for it like just fuck off just go in this corner you want to do that extra thing you want to help them okay mm-hmm. well okay uh, how are we gonna make money doing mm-hmm. renting out a room like I feel like they a lot of those folks in that sort of bureaucratic structure is like okay so how how does it benefit me why am I giving you this time this room and you have to like dance for them and try to figure it out Mm -hmm. so that doesn't surprise me that a museum would be like um yeah we just we don't really have that but um (laughs) sue the dinosaur like (laughs) ooh the field museum those fuckers (laughs) 
And that's funny Let's too. Let's not talk about the field museum. As my daughter's growing up, I'm like, can't wait to take her to this museum. And then I, you're like, fuck these people. I'm like, all right. They're so racist. Maybe we'll just watch it on YouTube. <laughs> they had to shut down their whole uh, section on their stolen artifacts of indigenous, po- their pillage, their homage to the pillaging of indigenous populations. So they had to close down the entire wing because obviously indigenous folks were very pissed off. And so now they're actually working with four four or five indigenous folks who are trying to like reimagine what that can look like that is respectful to indigenous populations and so i mean they're moving along and they're very transparent about it actually you can read about it in their like site uh, but they had to close all that shit down and had to reevaluate what was the proper way of you know having something that talks about indigenous people because we also don't want a big like their absence especially when we're talking about the city of chicago um so i will say that at least the field museum is trying and it has some really rad amazing folks doing this work that's good um yeah so i'm proud of them for that (laughs) but they still have a long fucking way to go because there's the problem with museums is that they're structured like if they're companies but they really are not they um so all the museums in the city are museum they're they're part of this larger um cohort called museums in the park so actually all museums in the city of chicago are on park land (laughs) and so a lot of people don't know that (laughs) they're actually part of the park district um and so they're all non-for-profits right but they're structured with like ceos and shit so you got like vice presidents and presidents making 100 150 thousand a year while the rest of us fucking schmucks are (laughs) who run the programs who curate the exhibits that we don't even get to choose because they get the last word. Uh, we just, get just we get an, shit. Just another machine. Yeah. Holding shelves. Do you know how much an educator in a museum makes? Thirty thousand a fucking year. That's what I was gonna guess. Yeah. Yeah, thirty. They they offered me that, and I'm like, are you fucking serious? No. <laughs> thirty thousand. Get the fuck out of here. I'll go do something else. Yeah, you can you could be a customer <laughs> service person on the phone for <laughs> exactly. the same price. And I can you... work at. I could have stayed at Target and didn't have to go get a fucking master's. And you can do and you can get overtime. <laughs> and I get overtime. Um, yeah, there's like some really huge problems, like that atmospheric noise in the background. What the fuck? Oh yeah, I forget. There's a service garage. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Every time I kept driving by, and trying to find a place to park, there's always like a tow truck, and I'm like, <laughs> you're giving me anxiety just looking at these. <laughs> Oh, it's because it's a service garage, so they get a lot of tow trucks, uh, FedEx trucks. It's just random shit. (laughs) I'm so used to it, I don't even hear it anymore. (laughs) Um, Anyways, yeah, museums, they're they're very complex. And the Chicago History Museum more so, because it used to be a historical society. And historical societies in the United States have been very problematic. Um, and so the museum decided to rebrand itself as a museum versus a historical society. But a lot of the ickiness is still very much there. Oh, I'm sure. But we're trying to change it. Um, a couple of fo- a lot of good folks in the museum industry, well-meaning folks, but we get burnt the fuck out and then we leave <laughs> because we're like, we can't do this anymore. You know, I've been in that museum for like three years and I've... <laughs> I've got some battle, gnarly battle scars. <laughs> so what's like a typical thing that you would have to like struggle with just to get something off the ground in terms of like, is it like project ideas or like just something you want to put in the curriculum and they're like, well, we really don't want to go in that direction or is it something like much more annoying? I actually operate in uh, what, so now that I do uh, talks with other museum professionals, um, they ask me this a lot, and I, uh, I'm a huge advocate of going broke. <laughs> okay. And so, like, for my, for example, you mentioned curriculum. I develop my own curriculum for my programs about the city of Chicago, and they're very intentional in who I'm talking about and what I'm talking about and how I'm talking about it. And, uh, yeah, the folks at the museum have no idea that these curriculums exist. So I operate in ambiguity, meaning I tell them the gist of what the programs are, but they don't need to know the details. And so that's kind of how I operate within that. Like what, And that's how I'm able to do the programs that I want to do. Some really rad pro- I mean, you've seen some of the work that I've done. It's like 
I got these babies doing some really great shit. Um, but the museum doesn't know that they have no idea that all of these things are happening. So I operate in ambiguity. Um, all of my partners are mine, not partners with the museum. And so, um, that's just kind of how I do it. But when it, it's like larger collaborations, like for example, the I was in the committee for like so all exhibitions have committees and people who are supposed to work together to develop these exhibitions it takes up to three years to develop an exhibition which a lot of people didn't know that. but yeah three years it's like research and finding the fit like the the things that will go in there and then building the actual exhibitions it's like one year um and so I was part of the women's exhibition so here's an example of how I sometimes have to struggle and navigate some gnarly ass systems um and obviously gender and sexuality I teach this for a living you know to to babies at universities um and you would think that that would mean something in this world right if you're doing an exhibition on women you probably would go with the one person who knows what the fuck she's talking about because she spent the last eight years of her school life in that But no, actually. <laughs> Instead, you challenge her thinking you know more than her. <laughs> so when I was in the women, when they were doing the women's exhibition, you know, the 100th anniversary of the Second Amendment, not the Second Amendment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> women getting the right to vote. Um, pass, like the anniversary of that shit passing was like not that long ago so they wanted to commemorate this right and so the problem is that uh, it was going to be an exhibition about the suffragettes the suffragettes were extremely classist and racist so that means that in essence you were going to have an exhibition entirely about white women and so in the year 2020 that shit's not gonna pass <laughs> and so I'm like you all need to look at this through a broader scope uh, but also a decolonial one the assumption and well, the old assumption in, like, feminist circles was that the beginning of, like, the first wave of feminism was the suffragettes. But, however, uh, for those of us who have done more research and now we have an expanding, and have always had an expanding knowledge of, like, black feminists, um, we know that that's not true. The Underground Railroad was a black feminist project. It was run by black women to liberate black women from the horrors of slavery. At the same time, we had indigenous women resisting the patriarchy of colonialism. And so um, all of these projects are also considered feminist projects, but not thought of as feminists because the suffragettes are white women and we live in a white supremacist country, so of course they're giving precedence over that. Um, and so when this exhibition began, I was like, well, where are the black women? Where are, femi- where are the indigenous women? And they were just like, well, this isn't their story. See, then that's just something that <laughs> I can, that interests me because it's like, okay, in my brain, when you first were laying this out, I was thinking, oh, are there women of color during the suffragette time period mm-hmm. that either they're probably floating out there in like encyclopedias but they're glossed over like they're like there's like one sentence like her (laughs) but everybody else over here yeah it's like susan b anthony it's the people who remember it was the person who was remembered for this but they don't remember you know they don't think they don't think of ida b wells right but even she like she comes up fairly often often can you name any other black suffragette no (laughs) but that's what i was like as you're as you're building it up i'm like okay so there's like three other idas just like hanging out in the wings like what the fuck dude there are hundreds of uh, black women who were part of this actually particularly in the south there were massive like just women uh black women because you know it was important but also like black women didn't get the right to vote when this shit was passed at all Black women were still uh, dealing with voter suppression, extreme voter suppression. Black women didn't get to really vote probably until the late 60s. Right. And by get to vote, we mean like there was actual violence stopping them from getting to the voting polls. But also, what does it even mean to vote, man? (laughs) But let's not go there. (laughs) Let's take it back. (laughs) So I think too, like when it comes to like, because I try to be that person that like, if I'm going to try to understand people in power and like the decisions that they make, cause I've had that theory. I don't think you and I've talked about it before, but it's like, why do they, like, are they really giving it the forethought or are they just sort of saying these canned responses just because they don't really want to do the critical thinking? They don't want to do the critical thinking. Like it's too hard. Like, it's like, 
Well, why? Okay, so Underground Railroad, we're talking about voting booths. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, but you're not looking at it from a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like this is ra- the slavery box here, voting box here. Why, right. are you, why are you trying to shove? Yeah, that's because people view history. Well, there's two things that come up when this happens. One, white people are operating in a, within white supremacy, right? Whiteness shields you from having to think about those things um, because that's what white supremacy is, right? It's like everything, the automatic is white. So people would look at the suffragettes and be like, it makes sense that these white women, it's not even a question. It's like, yeah, that's us. We're great, right? That's like operating in whiteness. But at the same time... That's a good episode, <laughs> Operating. I like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to borrow that. <laughs> you are free to have it. <laughs> and so when people um, stop operating within, uh, aside from like the operation of whiteness, there's also patriarchy, the assumption of like men being the, the entirety, the entire history of the United States is about propping up men, right? And so like... That's also another thing that happens when this is happening because they think of the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement particularly as a man's movement. But it was women who propelled this. Like, Gramsci's sisters for the abolitionists were like, I mean, John Brown was amazing and badass and we need more of him. Um, <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> but, yeah, like, he was amazing. He was just like, we're going to just blow shit up until we get people be free. And I'm like, yes, that's great. Obviously, it's more nuanced than that. But of course. I'm just giving you the short version. And the Grimke sisters were also actually very much active in that movement, but you seldom hear about them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the one to shy away from the idea of damage gets shit done if it needs to get done. I said that before to other people, and I've had... You know, my own friends were like, I don't know, buddy. And I'm like, no, maybe that's really what we need. Just like in the olden timey days. Yeah. But also, like, uh, white supremacy is a violent process. So, like, the idea that violence is not an option is so fucking weird to me because we we like people of color women queer folks we experience violence constantly there isn't a moment when we don't it is it's again operating in whiteness the assumption that there is a point where violence does not exist but it does it's in our lives it's it's and violence like and people people might hear this and like what is she talking about it's like when she says violence it doesn't mean a punch in the face even though that's a big part of it right but again it's just it's not just the punch box it's the words right it's the systems it can it, not just the systems too but like <laughs> i would say maybe just not even just the words but like just being dismissed when you're in like professional outings private outings like just just talking with friends like there's a whole like language that's kind of used against you yeah and i would say at least for me i've tried really hard to like analyze myself like I don't think I've ever done that but I don't know like I feel like if I just think about it too hard I'm just gonna make myself sad and it's like all right fuck it I mean you definitely operate in whiteness whether you like it or not I don't I don't really have a choice you don't have a fucking choice I don't have a choice <laughs> but you know the interesting thing is that you you know you're married to someone who is not white and so I'm pretty sure that you now are seeing more of those like you're you get a preview into your partner's like life and what they deal with and that I don't think you might have before so like you know I'm pretty sure there's some things that you were like shit I that's ever happened to me or like I've never thought about that like the microaggression thing like once I got married totally made sense right you know what I mean (laughs) because like I'm I think like for me I think about myself in terms of like I'm like 50% like quiet humble guy and then like 50% like opinionated prick and it can flip on like a on a dime right Right. so I just trying to navigate that just as a husband and I'm like fuck okay now I'm gonna raise a daughter yeah I gotta go super analytical super internal yeah because your daughter is going to your daughter is going to need the tools to respond to that and we had a huge discussion about that with (laughs) a huge discussion about that uh few days ago about like discipline Mm -hmm. like what kind of discipline can you do without setting a bad precedent and in my mind I think about that all the time like okay so if I discipline my kid if I spank him or if she's if she's really really bad and I like do a light smack on the cheek or whatever Mm -hmm. 
does that translate into something worse later? Well, she'll let a dude put his hands on her. <laughs> well. Like, it's a weird thing to think about, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely feeds into it. It's all part of patriarchy, right? I probably just incriminated the shit out of myself. But <laughs> fuck it. No, I think that has some serious uh, effects because it invalidates her experiences, right? It's like... I think a good way to navigate this, and I talk to folks like this all the time, is like, does when you hit her, do you think that she understands why you're hitting her? Right. And like, does she like truly? Does she grasp this notion? Can she grasp the notion of what she did wrong? Right. And if she can't grasp the the notion of what she did wrong, which led to her actions, and then and then violence, she's met with violence. Like that causes like some very like damage. Yeah. yeah, it's like some serious trauma um, because it's it's sending all these messages of like stay silent, invalidating of feelings, not trying to, un- not understanding. So like, you know, I come from a Mexican family, fucking corporal punishment. <laughs> they did not spare the fucking rod, let me tell you. No. <laughs> At all. And now that I'm older, um, obviously I, uh, I've like grappled with these things. Also therapy is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I love it. Everybody should have therapy. Everybody should have a fucking therapist. That should uh, be free with your. Uh, it should be free with your insurance when you work. But that's just that's another conversation for yes. another day. But fuck. Yes, yes. So you know, for me, it's like I'm dealing with it now as a fucking grown ass thirty two year old. Yeah. And I, it's a shitty. It's horrible. It's horrible what it does to you and to you and you know it's a daughter you have a daughter so it's a woman that's also important to note because <sighs> shit is hard for women and Fuck you yeah. know this and uh, I mean I mean that, that for me like I've always been like the observational sponge just soaking up things so like you know I, I may not be on Facebook and Twitter talking but I'm watching and just <laughs> observing and listening just taking all this shit in like okay so this is really how people think okay how do I navigate that <laughs> to where my daughter can feel safe and protected even if there's crazy fucking shit going on every single day? Mm-hmm. I don't want her, her head to blow up, but, yeah. you know, I got to make sure I don't appear like mine is. <laughs> that's going to inform the way that I'm talking and that's going to inform the way that I act around her. Right. It's like I don't want her to, you know, get anxiety and shit off, just off of my own... Mm-hmm. actions and just like my own worry right so like there's it, a weird I think about it like all the time probably to the point of like mania but like <laughs> you know just trying to basically when she wakes up I like flip on like a dad switch mm-hmm. and it's like okay so you know if you act bad we're gonna I'm gonna try to teach a lesson of why it's not good to just like <laughs> walk in a room and snatch PlayStation out of my hand you, you gotta ask <laughs> like just little things like that like I'm trying to just figure out ways to do that and yeah. we're off on a tangent, but I feel like it ties into <laughs> what you were talking about in terms of like the violence thing. Yes. And like the that violence isn't always like you said, a like a punch in the face. Violence sometimes is going into a museum that has no Spanish labels in the city of Chicago, where one third of the population speaks Spanish. You're sending a very clear signal to one third of the population in the city. Yeah, and I, I mean that, <laughs> that's always been the case for me. Is just like just seeing that, and it's like. I can just imagine people going, ew, like, we don't do that here. And it's like, <laughs> fuck, all right, I don't think I want to be here right now. No. You're just, you're just making the whole thing really dark. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see Sue the Dinosaur. What the fuck? I know, but the, these, need, these need to happen because then what happens is you bring your daughter into these spaces and what she is seeing then is, uh, you know, for her, it's an exotification if there is a presence of herself and her culture yeah uh, or part of her culture um because she's bicultural now (laughs) you know (laughs) and um it's important that the message that they get is that these cultures are still alive thriving and are important versus oh they happened so long ago they were colonized and now they ain't shit and that's not the message you want her to get. <laughs> and that's, I mean, even from like a weird, and this, this might sound fucked up, but like a weird monetary standpoint, it's weird to me that historical societies would not actively go out to document that stuff. Because, you know, there's an audience out there that will come and see it. You can have that market. 
Yeah. But they don't even want to be associated <laughs> with it at times. And they don't think that we're populations of value, that we have nothing to contribute. But we're the ones going to your fucking museums. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reason why, you know, the museum, the Chicago History Museum, has a collection of 300 Confederate flags. That they that museums, racist-ass museums in the South, then borrow for exhibitions. But But despite the fact that since the 1920s, Latinx people have made up pretty good chunk they have not a single thing a shred of collections about these populations at all eric zero zero things on a whole on one third of this city's population yeah nothing (laughs) well first that's too many fucking flags um you could probably just, like, make those into, burn like... Burn them off. I mean, Fuck that. I, yeah, I guess you can burn them. I was going to say just fucking, you know... <coughs> I guess you can make them into quilts for like homeless people, but I guess you no. can burn them. Burn them, burn them all. Better. Turn them into toilet paper. I'll fucking wipe my ass with it. So... <laughs> so as you... I'm incriminating myself now. That's... Welcome. <laughs> welcome. So, like, when you got into the museum... The, like, the museum game... I'm just going to use my dorky lingo now. So when you got into that... And you saw, like, the lack of, not just documentation, but, like, the lack of archiving, I guess, is the most mm. important thing is, even if the museums were like, well, we don't really want to do that shit, but I'm sure there's people that were just donating the shit to us and wanting it to be put mm-hmm. out there somewhere on the wall, the lack of archiving is fucking weird to me. Mm-hmm. Did that make you, like, did that make your heart sink, or did you, like, did you want to quit, or did you feel like, okay, I got, <laughs> I'm going to just fucking dig my heels in and just try to get as much cool shit as I can out there? Um... I definitely dug the fuck out of my heels. Yeah. <laughs> I had to. I mean, part of me was like, you know what? I don't I don't want to do this. It's hard, you know? It's like cuz it's so personal to me too, you know? And like it hurts to walk into a museum that has nothing about you. Um except for a fucking lowrider in the entrance. And actually funny story about that. Uh 3 months ago, there was a group of students from a school which actually is right around the corner from here who protested the museum. They wrote a petition, they wrote posters and demanded a meeting with the president of the museum to know why the fuck there was no Latinx history in the entirety of the museum other than a fucking lowrider, which by the way is like Chicano culture in California, not Chicago. And yes, it's like spilled over to over here and it's beautiful and it's great, but there's so much history of Chicago Chicagoans, Latinx Chicagoans that you could have put in there but because there's nothing in the collection this by the way was <laughs> a decision made by a white man to put this lowrider in here and then the labels that were added to this lowrider um, miss identified the populations and kept calling them Mexican-American. Lowriders is an explicit Chicano culture and Chicano and Chicanismo is like something that's very specific. It has a whole history, whether you agree with it or not. I have some critiques, (laughs) but like there was that that was that misnaming too. So there's like all these multiple harms being done. When I first walked into the museum, I'm a very vocal person. I was like, this is offensive as hell. They didn't listen to me. They didn't care. And so the kids came and I'm protested sh- the museum. Fuck, I'm sure the president's <laughs> like, what's the matter? I like the song. Just put it in the museum. <laughs> oh, no. Fuck, yeah. uh, they had a uh, the meeting and the kids demanded that an exhibition on Latinx history be hosted at the museum, that there be a collection effort, that they be included in this process. And it was all in CBS News and the Chicago Sun-Times or Chicago Tribune. Um, all this shit. And so the museum then was coerced and forced to think about this they were forced to represent one third of the city of the population and it's called the fucking chicago history museum and so the museum then committed to you know what the students demands were because how do you how would you even counter argue that we don't give a fuck or we don't care if you're offended by the way in which we've um or the lack of representation and so now um a latinx exhibit on the history of uh, Latinx people in the city of Chicago is uh, gonna premiere in about two and a half years, <laughs> and I am very much part of that committee. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so, let me ask this: How young were those kids? 
they're high schoolers and not just high schoolers they it's the institute of justice and leadership here okay. the rudy lozano one and so the, these are kids who couldn't who didn't stay in regular quote-unquote uh, high schools and uh were sent to alternative high schools. so it's an alternative high school i don't know if this made the rounds with your folks on the digital on the on the you know the data stream or whatever the fuck <laughs> but there's a video i saw a couple of weeks ago from glenn beck mm-hmm. and he put out this like thing it was like like an expose but like we have anonymous sources in the public school system and they have this curriculum to teach kids as young as third grade how to protest yeah <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that that's my curriculum. <laughs> Would you like to see some of the protest posters? Um, it's not teaching them how to protest. It's teaching them what civics look like. A lot of people don't understand and often don't think of civic engagement as also protest. Protests are actually very powerful tools of engaging civically for those who have been left out of the process of like civic engagement so voting for example like voter suppression and stuff like that um protests have like it change it influences the political system in ways that i think oftentimes people forget like the anti-war uh movement during vietnam those protests those very visceral physical like protests that change the public's perception of whether they should stay in vietnam or not and it also then influenced the political realm and you know a lot of people are like well you know does it really or you know how the system is so entrenched um for some people this is the only way of engaging civically that has a real world impact yeah sometimes people are like i went to vote and i feel good about my vote because i believe in the process of voting here's my vote selfie yeah (laughs) but for folks who have been ostracized and marginalized for so long that's not a good feeling what are you voting for for the system that's oppressing you and so the alternative to that is then having very public displays because the problem with notions of law and order is that you there's an assumption of peace but we know that when systems operate within this concept of law and order there's something at the bottom that's very insidious and as we're seeing now with like the police videos of black folks being lynched by police um because that's what these are these are public lynchings um there's there's the gawking of crowd the sharing of images and when uh when in the south when they used to lynch folks people used to take pictures they used to make postcards out of them you could send this postcard to your family member it's insidious as fuck and so are the sharing of these videos that we're seeing now these are public lynchings um for the for those who have always existed on the margins of like civic engagement being loud and public and present and forcing people to see you, to truly see you, is probably one of the most po- powerful political processes But uh, that we engage in, because I do it too, <laughs> um, in order to feel present, in order to, uh, to have some relief from the constant, like, violence that we face under this notion of, like, law and order that benefits only a particular... Uh, part of the population which we already know <laughs> yeah and I think that like when I watched the, the Glenn Beck thing I was like a part of me is like okay that makes perfect sense but you've got a ton of people who will look at it like this like underground railroad here suffragettes here so your idea of civics and uniting people somebody's gonna look at that video and go third grade why are you protesting in third grade eat a juice box like eat some cookies like what the fuck are we doing here well that's the assumption that this third grader is living a life where they don't experience marginalization but we know that they do for example when when i did the so the kids read about the young lords the black panthers here in the city of chicago the young turks uh the rainbow coalition um and all of these like folks who like or even like the feminist movement the queer liberation movement all of these different movements that really pushed folks into a different a different place right um boys town would have not existed 100 years ago right yeah like there's no way you could be openly queer like that and not get literally get murdered and there's still some places many places here in the city and across the u.s and across the world where people can't do that yeah and so um these kids are very much 
um, aware of what is happening and nobody's having conversations with them. When I was in that race exhibit, when I was doing those class workshops in the race exhibits, there were moments where I literally felt my soul die. And it was usually when I interacted with little kids. One time I found this young black girl, she was sitting in one of the okay like one of the exhibits right and she looked really sad and then she started crying and she was young I think she must have been like maybe eight nine years old and I was like hey what's going on and so she was just like I just don't understand why they hate us so much and like to see a baby girl crying asking and I know who she, who she means by they like she doesn't have to explain to me what she means by they mm -hmm. and so like how do you respond to that how do you respond to this young young girl who's sitting there crying because she has she's having a real visceral reaction to to what she experiences every day because even at this young age she's already experienced racism and she's already been conditioned to know how to navigate that that's the fucked up part and not only that but i had you know young latinx kids asking us why does donald trump hate us we, he doesn't know me he doesn't know my family i'm a good person when you hear shit like that from little kids you realize that there is a gap in the way in which we are engaging with these populations and it needs to be made right and one way in which you make it right is that these kids are feeling powerless there is a power behind art and a power behind being able to say the things that you want to say and these workshops which i do with third fourth and fifth graders have that integrated into them it has the arts integrated into them critical thinking but also being able to talk about the things that is you know bothering them because they are aware and they recognize what is happening outside of them i think there's like a when i think about that Again, all that makes perfect sense in this room. <laughs> you try to push that onto not just a news station, mm -hmm. but to a, a mass populace that is fucking just bashed over the head with so much trivial talking. And they contribute a big part of it to themselves. That's not going to get through. To me, it's like that is what I worry about because for me, there's a side of me that like I want to protect the you know the innocence of children as much as possible but if they're already feeling that way what the fuck choice do you have but to engage it in a way that's basically like okay we're gonna we're gonna take care of each other yeah this is how we're gonna fucking do it but then you try to present that to somebody and they're gonna be like oh well fucking it's too young and just uh, <laughs> just just stop talking like they're just gonna, they're just gonna immediately like you're making my head hurt. Stop yeah, this shit. It makes people uncomfortable to know that children are being harmed. Maybe I don't know. Cops have no problem killing little black children, so. Well, like, <sighs> it's tough because I I I put my own I put myself in that shoe of like okay so if if my kid is going to school, and she's gonna be engaging in civics i'm not going to call it protesting like the fucking video that's making the rounds is painting it to be mm -hmm. because i think another part of me is like okay so if my kid is out with protesters and she gets her ass whooped what am i going to do and the likelihood of her being the one who is physically harmed is also real even if she's protesting next to white folks yeah <laughs> that's so the I'm, fucked up part yeah so i mean there's a there's always going to be that fear and that protector part but it's like there's another part of me that like I said, you know, in this room, gotta do it. Yeah. You fucking have to. Yeah, it's her, for her survival. You know, I, I have nieces and nephews. One of my uh, oldest niece, she's 17. She's my pride and joy. <laughs> you know, and... Um, she's probably the reason behind half the <laughs> shit that you're making. You're thinking about her. I think about her all the time. I think about her, my nephew. Um, I think about my... And now I have a baby niece that's too... too Two months, two years old, and Emily is seventeen. Um, she's my pride and joy, and um, one of the things that I wanted, and I'm thankful for my sister for allowing me to do this, was definitely be able to like talk to Emily and be a real as hell about how to navigate the world. Because the moment that she became a teenager, I know what that meant. I meant that grown disgusting men were going to ogle her and make her uncomfortable because I became self-aware of my changing body by being in those positions like I did not I was not aware yet that my body was changing until men's older men started 
saying things to me and looking at me in a way that they've never looked at me before that made me feel so fucking unsafe and so and I remember no one ever having a conversation with me about like patriarchy and feminism and like you know the real violence that women face and then having to learn and unlearn so much shit and I didn't want that for my niece and so I made it a point to always try to teach her and to talk to her and to let her know as she is changing as she and as she changes and how society is going to react to her and engage with her and so now I feel like I'm confident I mean there's we can't protect people 100% of the time I am hopeful and hopeful that you know she will have a decent life where she experiences minimal shit like this but we live in a patriarchy so I know there will be some extent of how she deals that she's gonna have to deal with but at least now I that I hope that at least now that she knows this, there won't be that fucking shame about our bodies and ourselves. I mean, it's gonna be there inevitably because it's so permeated into society. But um, at least now she can name it, and when you can name what you are feeling, that shit is powerful as hell. <laughs> because if your daughter is navigating the world and this person treats her a certain way, and your daughter's like this person's being a racist, and then knowing how to move forward with that, either to confront them, to make the decision of confronting them or walking away, which a lot of us do a lot of the time for the sake of men- our mental health yeah. and our safety, we walk away because that those are the kind of survival tactics that she's going to have to learn not only as a woman of color but as a fucking woman. And I made sure that my niece had this available. And when I look at the curriculum and the things that I do with the students that I run my programs with now, that is what I have in mind, is how do we expose you to the stories of women and the stories of queer liberation and black liberation and people who have been marginalized because this is the population that I'm working with. I'm not going to come to you with a history that has zero fucking impact on who you are. It's important. Yeah. (laughs) The archiving, right? Yeah. And that's the thing that like people just at large don't really they don't they don't step away from themselves and look at those people as their own stories. Everybody, you know, everybody's like go online, take a picture, talk some shit. <laughs> take a picture, take a picture, take a picture of my mai tai and my food. You know, it's very like it's very self congratulating and like I've had tons of discussions with this about this with my friends like the social media like it helps you it gives you this power to like sort of just control your own narrative and like you could just kind of like you could just say whatever the fuck you want yeah just shout people down yeah and then they'll just give up <laughs> and then you win so like I think that is a part of that too like there's so many people just trying to tell their own story or just wanting to see other stories like theirs because it just it it helps you yeah and you know yeah you know just get a job (laughs) just work hard and then don't don't get aggressive if you get pulled over it's like okay sure that's cool but like i'll try (laughs) i'll try my best that's like you know telling somebody in quicksand don't move because you're gonna you're gonna sink if you move but you're gonna sink anyways all right see that fern okay go get it yeah i could probably help you but just give me a second yeah that's it's fucking hard to see that some of that shit sometimes it's like so that's really why like i wanted to come and talk with you because like that helps me like open up the part of my brain that i wasn't using yet like that idea because like i'm always trying to just understand so like i said i want to operate less in whiteness i guess (laughs) i want to just add more shades to the whiteness (laughs) i mean you you're shit out of luck you have to operate in an anti-racist manner all the fucking time because there's a little life depending on you and if you don't do right by her then well then i'll kick your ass There's a long, your wife will whoop your ass. There's a long line of people that are ready in case there's any shit that goes yeah, down. Yeah, but I'll, I'll push myself through the front of the line. I'll be like, I call dibs first. No, I mean, you have to. It's not It's not an option. And now you, you have to keep that in mind all the time. Welcome to being a person of color. I'm trying to 
There was one more question I had, but it, it got it got lost <laughs> yeah. way back in the beginning. Damn. Because um, I go on tangents. I do this all the time. <laughs> my students, I always tell my students, if you get lost, just pull me back in. <laughs> um, do, they ha- do they have to do that a lot? No, they don't, actually. They really enjoy... Uh, they really enjoy the flow of the lecture. And also, you know, I speak I speak to them. I lecture to them exactly how I speak on a day-to-day basis. So, like, how I'm talking to you here. No, I'm, I'm getting a lecture. <laughs> this is more, this is not a podcast. This is a lecture today. <laughs> I know. This is how, like, I talk to them, you know, and I swear a lot. And, uh, you know, I tell them beforehand. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just swear a lot. I love swear words. I'm not going to change it. It's my life. <laughs> fuck. If you can get away with that, fuck. You're, you're the best teacher. I wish we had teachers back in the day. That would just cuss and shit. I would have loved that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, my classes are very interesting. You know, I, I teach an intro to gender and sexuality, uh, sociology of Latinas, and um, literary and cultural analysis in Spanish for the Spanish department. Are there any papers of yours we can read online so I can, like, plug them, put them in the shit? Um, there are some things that I've... I can actually send you the link to the online map for the exhibit on Mapping Queer Chicago. Oh, that's totally going in the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the map, people. <laughs> yeah, you know, you get to explore the all of the different queer sites in the city of Chicago. It's online. It's a Google map, and uh, it gives you some info on why it's important, and it's a good spread of, like, you know, geographical and historical analysis of the way in which queerness has shifted the city or has shifted in the city. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I like this. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want you to think that I was, like, I was just looking at not just the time, but, like, the thing cuts off after, like, an hour. Yeah. So I was like, fuck. All right, so I'll just leave it at an hour. Then. You got five minutes. I got five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I I'll send you some. Uh, I don't have. I did write an article too on like queerness and and as like a not being something that is new, but actually an extension of like our histories. So like, uh, I particularly focus on like three musicians from Mexico who and artists, um, who were very openly queer, and navigated queerness in a very fascinating way. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> give me that. I want to. I'm putting that in there too. Okay. Um, yeah, I can definitely share that. Um, definitely talks about how nuanced that shit is. Uh, but also, like for example, Juan Gabriel being one of the most prominent ones, and you know they asked him once during an interview, like, "So are you gay?" And one of his infamous responses was like, "Lo que se ve no se pregunta." What is obvious, you do not ask. And so that was such a beautiful way of not explicitly being forced to out yourself but also saying like mind your own fucking business but yes that's smooth as fuck (laughs) right that's fucking smooth (laughs) and he is you know one of mexico's most um prominent musicians his music will make any motherfucker cry like even the manliest of machos will cry to juan gabriel's music because his fan base was just so massive i'm downloading that shit (laughs) i'll send you a playlist all right i already have one already i'm ready ready to cry i'm good at i'm good at crying right now He just, like, feels shit. Which, actually, by the way, I think that the reason why Mexicans are so fucking obsessed with Morrissey and the Smiths, because it's an actual thing. Oh, uh, that makes total sense. It makes, yeah. There's, like, a distinct connection between Juan Gabriel and Morrissey. I don't know if there's, like, (laughs) if there's a mariachi band in Chicago that does Morrissey and Smith songs, call me. Oh, I'm pretty sure we could find it. When I went to California, I um, have a friend out there. And he's a professor now, a history professor. He's really wonderful. He documents the history of, like, rock and español in Southern California, um, or just in California. And so he, we were having this conversation, and he often asks his students, like, why do you think we're so in love with Morrissey, even though, you know, he's a fucking asshole. Big time asshole. And <laughs> his novel was asshole. horrible. He's an asshole. His novel. But I would lie, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that it, amongst my records are all of, uh, vinyls are all of the Smiths and Morrissey's records. Yeah. <laughs> and I have his autobiography. <laughs> one, one day, I'll... I'll send you some excerpts of his novel because there's like the most awkward writing about <laughs> fucking I've ever read in my life. That's because he doesn't fuck. <laughs> Morrissey, get on it, brother. <laughs> Stop being a fucking racist. All this information is online. You got to learn how to fuck right. <laughs> Watch some porn. <laughs> I think that's a good spot to end it. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
<laughs> Watch porn. 